allowing ourselves to take full advantage of this opportunity. Where, relatively speaking, we're freed from the uh, many of the duties, demands, activities which uh, make up our daily life. Not to set this up as something higher or what we should be doing. Or to, to put that other stuff down as the worldly stuff. But to have an occasion to get things in perspective. It's through lack of a balanced perspective. It's through making assumptions about ourselves and about the circumstances and the beings of our lives that we take birth in certain realities that aren't really the case. And then when, when, uh, when those uh, fantasies, those imaginations, those illusions then get shattered by the intrusion of certain things that we just can't ignore, We, we feel knocked. Reality knocking at our door in rather harsh uh, ways. We, we, can, we can turn it into a good reason to just blame, blame others or blame ourselves, or we can take it as Tanisra reminded us last night, this lovely, wonderful concept in the Buddhist teaching of Devadutta, Deva means heavenly dutta messenger. That sometimes when reality sort of uh, penetrates into consciousness like a kind of somebody smashing through our door, can be a bit shocking. But they might have a really special delivery <laughs> message, like, notice me. I'm not just a mistake, I'm part of life. Whether it's old age, whether it's sickness, whether it's death, whether it's the different forms of uh, suffering, the, the, the despair, the disappointment, whether it's the being with is listed in our chanting every day, the unloved, being with what we don't want to be with. whether it's a painful knee, whether it's someone else's presence that just kind of bugs me, whether it's a circumstance in this life that's frightening, whatever it is, can we actually see that this is part of this profound, noble truth of dukkha that actually needs to be understood or whether it's the uh, not wanting to be parted from the loved, being in contact with that which is lovely, 
that which is beautiful, a beloved one, a good friend, a dear one, to even watch that in us that just, even out of something beautiful, can generate, and then an aura of anxiety and fear. Don't ever go. Don't ever change. Don't ever leave me. Actually, we're saying, don't be alive. Freeze. For me. I think of someone who, in the name of love, wanted his partner to give up everything. Didn't want them to see children. Didn't want the partner to like animals. Didn't want them to... My gosh, just imagine cutting off everything and trying to freeze so that you never change. How beautiful is that? But there's something in us that does that, and it's, and it's, it's deep. I make fun of it, but it's deep and it's convincing when we're in contact with something that's so beautiful not realizing that part of that beauty is emerging from our ability to be open. Part of the beauty is coming right from our own heart. Part of our beauty is our ability to see, ability to open our heart and include, ability to rejoice in, and and, and there's some deep tendency then to, to then link with that mind. And then the fear of not wanting to be parted from the loved. That's suffering. So we have we have this opportunity in these in these days, these this occasion, this 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 little clearing space, where we're clearing some space to, to have a chance to get in perspective. our body, our mind, our moods, our emotions, our tendencies, for, for the sake of illuminating them with awareness, with investigation, with calm. The more there's the... the I wanted to say one other thing. These these truths first noble truth, second noble truth, third noble truth, fourth noble truth. As with these other uh, teachings that we're offering, they're they're to be they're to be used wisely. They're they're not to be kind of just blindly grasped and believed as as the ultimate truth. The Buddha didn't teach ultimate truths that can be grasped. Suffering is the grasping of anything thinking it's the ultimate truth. Whatever we grasp at, try it. Wherever our attention can point, whether it's to a form, whether it's to a feeling, whether it's to a memory, whether it's to a subtle concept, try it. Wherever attention can focus on a thing, 
Can we grasp it? When we look more closely, we'll see that that so-called thing is shifting and changing. It's, it's that very sense that we can get something and keep it that is generating the whole mess of confusion. So the noble truth isn't, isn't then meant to be just uh, something else to kind of grasp at. These, these, these religious teachings, these truths, these reflective teachings are, are a little bit like the mission. In, did you ever see Mission Impossible as a kid? I used to like, I can't remember the music, but whoever can remember it, think it. And then the music, and then they have this tape playing in this mission, should you choose to accept it. And you listen to this, this incredible thing, and in 20 seconds, whatever, this tape will self-destruct. And the noble truths are just like that. <laughs> well, maybe sort of like that. <laughs> but we, we, we use them, and they're, they're meant to be mirrors, encouragements to look again. Encouragements to get beyond the idea of just freezing on this is good, this is bad, this is mine, this is yours. These are frozen views. The, the tendency of mind with suffering is to just go the other way. Boom. So an encouragement to question that solution to the difficulty of life is the noble truth of suffering needs to be turned to and open to. It's not a frozen view. It's an encouragement to look again at something that we have labeled with a big B, bad. Or a curse, a big C, curse. To heavenly messenger. What? You mean there's something here to grow from, learn from? Something to be understood? That's a powerful re-looking. The second noble truth, the, the origin of, of, of suffering is, it says, you know, classically, is that tendency of the mind just to delight, to relish, to grasp. This origin of suffering called tanha, or a deluded craving, which the Buddha said needs to be let go, needs to be given space to, needs to be abandoned. Now that's not a, when we take that as a, as a kind of rigid view, then, then basically we go around hating desire. End up like the Buddha. End up following another desire, which he didn't even really recognize until his enlightenment, trying to kill everything. Squash it, crush it, clench his teeth through torturing himself, developing tremendous willpower. But it wasn't the ending of suffering. So, so, so to balance, what tends to happen when desire comes into the mind? It tends to be something that immediately is me. I won't. I've got to have because it's good. I need it, whatever it is. So, so again, this reflective truth, this noble truth, what can lead to a deepening of our nobility, a deepening of our understanding of the way things are, if we can look again at our relationship to desire, realizing that there's choice here, 
infusing some quality of investigation in presence into this, into this tendency to be hijacked by a current, a thought-feeling current that takes us into kamatanna, the first kind of desire, the, the, the desire for, for wanting a pleasant something to see. I mean, turning it into, yes, I mean, I've got to have you, whether it's beauty, whether it's a thing, whether it's a person. Or, or it's opposite. Not wanting. Kamadana, Bhavadana, this this desire to then not just be attracted, but then to want to become, to want it to be me, to want it to freeze, to to want it to to then be embodied and be mine. We we can we, we can notice this, and even in our meditation, when we get a taste of peace, and then and then to. What is that? What's going on when something happens in the mind that says, yes, this is where I'm going to be? Mine. It's subtle, but it's significant. Or it's opposite. The wanting not to be. That in us which, which comes up with tension. That is which comes up with resentment and pushes out destroys, gets rid of the desire not to be, the desire not to feel, the desire to destroy, the desire to get rid of. And then an attachment to that feeling when there's something that is obviously blocking how we think it should be, the pushing. When there's something that is being wanted, being stuck to that, the grasping, the becoming. When there's no bringing of the second noble truth into our lives, then, then, then basically we're, we're just, as I say, hijacked. Desire comes into the mind and it, it's obviously me. And I'm, and I'm just wanting, not wanting. And then being carried by that, chasing, fighting. An image that comes to my mind. Imagine if we were going down the street and we just wanted to, to, to get some bread or something from the shop. If every single person that we came by, we had to kind of, oh, it's wonderful to see you, and kind of embrace them. Or, or the ones that we didn't like, oh, gosh, how dare you be on my street. And kind of, you're not on my street, you're not allowed on my street and embracing people and confronting people, exhausting. Is it possible to walk down the street even if we know people? Maybe we like some, maybe we don't like some. To actually go down the street acknowledging and glide in between, letting those beings come in to our world and move through our world. Is that possible? Desire tends to be something 
when it comes into the mind that, that, that like going down the street, it's so much me because it's associated with the pleasing or so much associated with getting rid of what I don't want. Kamatanha, moving toward the pleasing. Bhava tanha, the craving to become, identify with, keep on. We bhava tanha, the craving to get rid of. And this happens, this happens in, in a flash, and, and this is difficult. Yes, the calming, and, and by all means, continue with what skill we have to resourcing our capacity to sustain presence, to calm, so that the seeing eye, our dhamma eye, our capacity to actually view how it is, is, is maintaining some strength. And it's not easy then to, to, to also especially if we have a posture, a mudra, a holding that feels sort of refreshing. Hmm. Yes, drink that in. But remember, if we just want to become that, it's going to be awful disappointing. I'm speaking from experience because I got depressed after retreat, after retreat, after retreat, after retreat, after retreat. Because I wanted so much just to be the tranquility. And yes, it is skillful. It is wonderful. But little by little, being a slow learner, little by little, I also realized that, yes, use some of that tranquility to also begin to just reflect on the nature of change. To reflect on this wanting and not wanting. So that some of that power, some of that tranquility could brighten, could illuminate, could reveal these, these profound and ongoing causes of suffering in myself and in the world. And so when we are going about our business, every time there's contact with the eye and there's seeing, there's contact, there's the pleasing or painful or neutral sensation, we have the opportunity to watch the mind. Does it move to it to try to get it? Does it move away from it to try to avoid it? Whether it's seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or feeling or thinking, each one of these moments of contact has feeling, pleasing, displeasing, neutral. And we have this opportunity to watch, to recognize what's going on when the mind rushes towards something. Yes, we're developing the ability to let be, to let go. To have this container of the silence, the sitting and the walking, so that we can begin to get these energies into perspective. The desire needing to be let go of, doesn't say crushed, doesn't say killed. Actually, that desire energy as it's purified is important because it fuels us. It becomes right aspiration. It becomes skillful desire. It becomes that which leads us onward. Not that we kill off this energy, but it's also not that we just blindly be bounced around by it either. Blindly swept away. So actually learning to feel, feel wanting, feel not wanting. And we sense it's burning. 
and we sense the, the tension, the current that wants us to follow it? And can we actually sense what happens if there is a letting it be? The current might still be there, but what if we let go of that relationship with it? This is mine. What if it becomes Dhamma? What if it becomes part of nature? Can we get the feeling of the release? The release. When instead of me wanting, it is there is wanting. And in that kind of space, there is wanting. There's a possibility of sensing more dispassionate what should be followed. Or sensing what should be patiently born because we sense that is, that is not to be followed, that's to be blessed and touched with patience so that that energy is transformed into patience, transformed into strength and wise reflection. Tanissa said last night, this is, I don't know if she said it last night, I'll say it this morning. Sometimes this teaching business is no picnic. Especially if you've had the, the incredible good fortune of really being with, when I think of Lumpa Cha and his capacity to, to flow, to, to share what we needed, because he was with how we were, so he then shared what we needed. From lucid, from lucidity, from experience, from compassion. And it's, it's frustrating trying to communicate, can be, when we sense the preciousness of these wonderful reflections, these wonderful teachings, these wonderful opportunities. It's one thing to, to be committed oneself to keep working on that. It's another thing, and quite a miracle, really, to, to then try to make noises that somehow impart something. So we do the best we can. But it's important to remember where all this comes from, to remember the Buddha, and in this case to remember our, our teacher, Ajahn Chah, this wonderful forest monk, who, who inspired and, uh, Tanissa and I very much, who gave me my name, Kitisaro. He, in other words, he was my preceptor. He ordained me as a bhikkhu. Ajahn Sumato actually chose the name and Ajahn Chah gave it to me in the ceremony. So I'd like to read a short uh, translated talk of his just to drop this into our practice. The practice of Dhamma goes against our habits. The truth goes against our desires. So there is difficulty in the practice. Some things which we understand as wrong may be right while the things we take to be right may be wrong. Why is this? Because our minds are in darkness. We don't clearly see the truth. We don't really know anything and so are fooled by people's lies. 
They point out what is right as being wrong and we believe it. That which is wrong they say is right and we believe that. This is because we are not yet our own masters. Our moods lie to us constantly. We shouldn't take this mind and its opinions as our guide because it doesn't know the truth. Some people don't want to listen to others at all, but this is not the way of a person of wisdom. A wise person listens to everything. One who listens to Dhamma must listen just the same, whether he likes it or not, and not blindly believe or disbelieve. We must stay at the halfway mark, the middle point, and not be heedless. He just listens and then contemplates, giving rise to the right results accordingly. A wise one should contemplate and see the cause and effect for themselves before believing what is heard. Even if the teacher speaks the truth, don't just believe it because you don't yet know the truth for yourself. It's the same for all of us, including myself. I've practiced before you. I've seen many lies before. For instance, quote, this practice is really difficult, really hard. Why is this practice difficult? It's just because we think wrongly. We have wrong view. Previously, I lived together with other monks, but I didn't feel right. I ran away to the forests and mountains, fleeing the crowd, the monks and novices. I thought that they weren't like me. They didn't practice as hard as I did. They were sloppy. That person was like this and this person was like that. This was something that really put me in turmoil. It was the cause for my continually running away. But whether I lived alone or with others, I still had no peace. On my own, I wasn't content. In a large group, I wasn't content. I thought this content was due to my companions, due to my moods, due to my living place, the food, the weather, due to this and that. I was constantly searching for something to suit my mind. As a Tudanga monk, as a wandering monk, I went traveling, but things still weren't right. So I contemplated, what can I do to make things right? What can I do? Living with a lot of people, I was dissatisfied. With few people, I was dissatisfied. For what reason? I just couldn't see it. Why was I dissatisfied? because I had wrong view, just that, because I still clung to the wrong Dhamma. Wherever I went, I was discontent thinking, here is no good, there is no good, on and on like that. I blamed others, I blamed the weather, the heat, the cold, I blamed everything, just like a mad dog. It bites whatever it meets, because it's mad. When the mind is like this, our practice is never settled. Today we feel good, tomorrow no good. It's like that all the time. We don't attain contentment or peace. The Buddha once saw a jackal, a wild dog, run out of the forest where he was staying. It stood still for a while. Then it ran into the underbrush. Then out again. 
Then it ran into a tree hollow, then out again. Then it went into a cave, only to run out again. One minute it stood, the next it ran, then it lay down, then it jumped up. That jackal had manes. When it stood, the manes would eat into its skin, so it would run. Running, it was still uncomfortable, so it would stop. Standing was still uncomfortable, so it would lie down. Then it would jump up again, running into the underbrush, the tree hollow, never staying still. The Buddha said, Monks, do you see that jackal this afternoon? Standing, it suffered. Running, it suffered. Sitting, it suffered. Lying down, it suffered. In the underbrush, a tree hollow, or cave, it suffered. It blamed standing for its discomfort. It blamed sitting. It blamed running and lying down. It blamed the tree, the underbrush, and the cave. In fact, the problem was with none of those things. That jackal had manes. The problem was with the manes. We monks are just the same as that jackal. Our discontent is due to wrong view. Because we don't exercise sense restraint, we blame our suffering on externals. Whether we live at the monastery in the forest, or in America, or in London, we aren't satisfied. Going to live at Bung Wai, another monastery nearby, or at any of the other branch monasteries, we're still not satisfied. Why not? Because we still have wrong view within us. Wherever we go, we aren't content. But just as that dog, if the mange is cured, is content wherever it goes, so it is for us. I reflect on this often, and I teach you this often, because it's very important. If we know the truth of our various moods, we arrive at contentment. Whether it's hot or cold, we are satisfied. With many people or with few people, we are satisfied. Contentment doesn't depend on how many people we're with. It comes only from samaditti, right view, balanced seeing. If we have right view, then wherever we stay, we are content. But most of us have wrong view. If we have right view wherever we go, we're content. I have practiced and seen this. These days there are many monks, novices, and lay people coming to see me. If I still didn't know, if I still had wrong view, I'd be dead by now. The right abiding place for practitioners, the place of coolness, is just this right view. We shouldn't look for anything else. So even though you may be unhappy, it doesn't matter. That happiness is uncertain. It's changing. Is that happiness yourself? Is there any substance to it? Is it really real? I don't see it as being real at all. Unhappiness is merely a flash of feeling which appears and then is gone. Happiness is the same. Is there a consistency to happiness? Is it truly an entity? It's simply a feeling that flashes suddenly and is gone. There, it's born. Then it dies. Love flashes up and then disappears. Where is the consistency in love or hate or resentment? In truth, there is no substantial entity there. There are impressions which flare up and die. They deceive us constantly. We find then no certainty anywhere 
just as the Buddha said, when unhappiness arises, it stays for a while, then disappears. When unhappiness disappears, happiness arises and lingers for a while and then dies. When happiness disappears, unhappiness arises again and on and on like this. In the end, we can only say this. Apart from the birth, the life, and the death of suffering, there is no thing. There's just this. But we who are ignorant run and grab it constantly. We never see the truth of it, that there's simply this continual change. If we understand this, then we don't need to think very much, but we have much wisdom. If we don't know it, then we will have more thinking than wisdom and maybe no wisdom at all. It's not until we truly see the harmful results of our actions that we can give them up. Likewise, it's not until we see the real benefits of practice that we can follow it and begin working to make the mind good. If we cut a log of wood and throw it into the river and that log doesn't sink or rot or run aground on either of the banks of the river, that log will definitely reach the sea. Our practice is comparable to this. If you practice accordingly to the path laid down by the Buddha, following it straightly, you will transcend two things. What two things? Just those two extremes that the Buddha said were not the path of a true meditator. Indulgence, grasping at pleasure. Indulgence, grasping at pain. These are the two banks of the river. One of the banks of that river is hate. The other is grasping love. Or you can say that one bank is happiness, the other unhappiness. The log is this mind. As it flows down the river, it will experience happiness and unhappiness. If the mind doesn't cling to that happiness or unhappiness, it will reach the ocean of Nibbana. You should see that there is nothing other than happiness and unhappiness arising and disappearing. If you don't run aground on these things, then you're on the path of a true meditator. This is the teaching of the Buddha. Happiness, unhappiness, love and hate are simply established in nature according to the constant law of nature. The wise person doesn't follow them. He doesn't cling to them. This is the mind which lets go of indulgence in pleasure, indulgence in pain. It is the right practice. Just as that log of wood will eventually flow to the sea, so will the mind which doesn't attach to these two extremes inevitably attain peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.